Did you know Book Interrupted has swag? Check out our swag shop on bookinterrupted.com. There's hats, t-shirts, tanks, and a whole bunch more. Go to www.bookinterrupted.com. Parental guidance is recommended because this episode has mature topics and strong language. Here are some moments you can look forward to during this episode of Book Interrupted. I also think it's important, and maybe we've been negligent a little bit in this conversation, to note all the accomplishments that she had too. Like she's not yes. just, I went to residential school. Do you really, yeah. really think that you're going to be alive, that that's going to happen in your lifetime? She had an IQ test and she's like, and I know IQ tests aren't the end all and be all, but she's got a really high IQ and she was told basically her whole life that she was not smart. We should have just killed them. So part of me thinks, well, hopefully they have learned that when that happens and we're at their doors asking for help, they're like, you're on your own. Disrupted. Mind, body, and soul. Inspiration is with uh, And we're going to talk it uh, out. On Book Interrupted. Welcome to Book Interrupted, a book club for busy people to connect and one that celebrates life's interruptions. If you'd like to join along, this book cycle is from October 24th to December 4th. It's Kim's book pick. And we're reading They Called Me Number One by Bev Stellars. In this frank and poignant memoir of her years at the St. Joseph Mission, Stellars breaks her silence about the residential school's lasting effects on her and her family. From substance abuse to suicide attempts, and eloquently articulates her own path to healing. Let's listen in to this episode's group discussion. I like to think about when reconciliation, like, I mean, right now we just talk about reconciliation as a concept that could happen one day. We not really think about what it could be. If you really got to reconciliation, then you'd have indigenous people living on their land, governing themselves, making decisions, being involved in decisions that affect other parts of the country and stuff. I just hope that I'm alive to see what that looks like. It could be so good for our country. So far, like what it looks like is we'll pretend that's what we're doing until we want to build a pipeline and then you disagree and then we'll have a big standoff because it never fucking meant shit in the first place. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what it looks like right now. Do you really, really think that you're going to be alive, that that's going to happen in your lifetime? I don't know. She she hopes. I (laughs) I think that as the climate crisis gets worse, who knows what's going to happen? I think about that a lot and I, I just don't know what kind of desperate things people will do. Sometimes I'd like to read on what some of the solutions might be. And there's this one kind of scary one where they basically, I'm just going to put it in a nutshell, you block out part of the atmosphere so that not as much sun gets to earth and then it cools down the earth. And they estimate it's not going to cost very much, like, I don't know, $10 billion a year. So somebody is probably banking on that. If a country decides to do it, we're all in it. You know, we're all living on the earth. And I just kind of feel like, People who don't want to uh, face the climate crisis or change anything right now, they're like, well, we've already got that in our back pocket. I feel like that might happen one day. You know, like that's my fear. And I hope that instead we can all learn how to change 
change and think about kind of living seven generations down the road. But I don't know. Maybe things will get so bad that the only people who are going to do okay are the people who are still have regained and are practicing their indigenous knowledge and the rest of us are poor schlubs are going to be doing whatever, begging at their door. I don't know. Because the yeah, thing right. is heating up so fast and nobody's stopping. <laughs> it's just accelerating, accelerating, and everything is just making it worse. Like the permafrost, they're like, oh, that's accelerating things faster than we thought it was or whatever. I just think it could happen in my lifetime. The way things are accelerating, I think. things. Well, could. yeah, like Aww. it's like it could get so bad that the settler society will actually listen to the Indigenous people and actually work together. They're like, can I eat this? Right? Like how crazy <laughs> that, yeah. You know, like it'll be so bad that they actually follow through with what yeah, they I said they were going to do. Right. However, yeah. many hundreds of years ago. Who knows? I know it's bleak. I'm sorry. It is bleak. Nobody that's it needs to be because people don't want to. That's everybody's kind of strategy. You can't do it anymore because it's becoming more of a crisis. Obviously, the longer that we pretend it isn't. Yeah. So you know, I'm guilty too. We own two cars in this house. Right. And I could bike to the grocery store every time, and I do sometimes, and a lot of the time I take my car, you know. And I could, but I just, because of the time and the kids, I just don't. So, you know, I'm apathetic about it too. Yeah. I was just thinking how you said then the settlers will come to the indigenous people, like begging them for help. And it makes me think how her second husband was said at one of those conferences, we should have just killed them. Then they came. We should have just killed them. So part of me thinks like, well, hopefully they have learned that when that happens and we're at their doors asking for help, they're like, you're on your own. (laughs) (laughs) We learned you're on your own. We're not helping you because when it comes to helping us back, you're nowhere to be found. Yeah. Like that's history. That's history over and over and over. Even in her book, remember there was a guy that near her family's home that was struggling and everyone in the community helped him and then his ranch took off and then he wouldn't even acknowledge anyone in the community anymore crazy yeah so is it would you recommend the book time is it appropriate to would you recommend the book time yeah we do recommend the book now well, I, I do. recommend the book. <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> Together. <laughs> I've already recommended the books. Yeah. I don't know if it's the last one you should read though. Like Sarah was saying, there's lots out there. So yeah, that's a good point. I recommend this book and many, many more books about mm-hmm. the truth, whatever yes. aspect of it. But if you're not really sure what's like happened in residential schools or what it's all about, and you want to know some of the things that happened, this is a good place to start. I think. Even also children's books, actually. If you're really like, oh my God, I'm not sure I can handle. That's the thing is that everybody's so delicate, which is not appropriate because people actually handled the actual truth. Like they actually, and many people didn't, right? Many people didn't even survive it. The least you can do is read it, you know? Mm -hmm. Vicarious trauma, be damned. Mm -hmm. But anyways, you could read it in a children's book and it's probably a softer serving because it's for children, but you should know the truth. Yeah. I recommend it, although I've only read half of it. But, uh, but so far, so good. But so far, no, I just think it's an important information, an important story, just like you were both saying and talking about teaching this in schools and having kids learn this and read this in schools. I think that would be very important for all of us. So, yes, I recommend it. Sarah? I, I recommend the book too. I think it's a great 
like I said, a starter book because it's easier to digest the information that she's put in it because of the tone of her book, because it's a matter of fact. But I think, yeah, continue learning after that and telling people and ask, suggesting books for them to read because the more of us that know, the better. I also think it's important, and maybe we've been negligent a little bit in this conversation, to note all of the accomplishments that she had too. Like she's not yes. just, I went to residential school, you know, I'm the token for someone who's been there. You know, I mean, I have to remember, I was like, she was chief. I believe she completed yeah. university, potentially a PhD. I can't remember, obviously, because it's me. The end of this book, yeah. like it's not all about just residential school and how terrible that was. It's about her journey and her healing. And it's a, a good story to, to show just the evolution of a human who went from the shits of the shit and was able to come out the other side. And yeah, with so the help of self-help books, Lindsay, she gives yes. a lot of credit to self-help books. She very oh, much no. enjoyed them. Oh, yeah. I haven't got to that part. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. I don't recommend. No. No. <laughs> no I you don't recommend self-help. <laughs> I rented that in my personal journal, her self-help book that she discovered. She got it for 25 cents. It was like the something of positive thinking. The power of positive thinking. Yeah. I'm looking at the back of the book that she earned a degree in history from University of Victoria and a law degree from the University of British wow. Columbia. She was employed by the UBC Law School, articled at a Vancouver law firm, decided a law career wasn't for her and returned to Soda Creek, where she is still the chief or was the chief. I don't know if she still is the was, chief. And then she wasn't and then she was again, I thought. Um, yeah, I know if she that's right. Being the chief. Yeah. Did she? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's employed and by so the maybe BC Treaty Commission as a treaty process community information advisor. She's the first elected chief of the Soda Creek Band in 1987. Spoken out on behalf of her community on racism in residential schools and on the environmental and social threats of mineral resource exploitation in her region. Yeah, and that's the thing. The second half of the book kind of talks about the challenges. She wanted to be a nurse. And then the guidance counselor didn't help her at all. And then when she went through high school and she was going to go and they're like, but you're in the wrong stream. You're in the- Yeah, nobody told her. Not the like, academic no, one, the uh, technical or- maybe? One was more for hands-on Hands-on, stuff. yeah. Anyway, they put her in the wrong stream. So she was working hard to be a nurse. And then because somebody before. was not helping her and not doing their job, they basically just- dashed her dreams that she had had for many years and she overcame that it was just the last half of the book kind of talks about even though the residential schools have been closed the challenges are still there and so it's all upward battle mm. like over and over and over and that's what needs to change now like they close the schools okay now everything else <laughs> yeah <laughs> right? everything yeah. else so yeah yeah because like closing the building it's surface mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, so I guess that's the other thing about this book. We talked a lot about residential schools, but it does talk a lot about, you know, it's a good overview kind of the before and the after. Yeah, and the, the challenges book. that she had to overcome to get to where she is, which is incredibly successful today and a, right. a really strong leader. I don't know if I can go so far as to say like a healed person, but like definitely on a healing journey where she's doing it to herself too, healing herself. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is the perception she had of herself. I like the part where she had an IQ test. And she's like, and I know IQ tests aren't the end all and be all, but she's got a really high IQ. And she was told basically her whole life that she was not smart. Right. And then all of a sudden she's like, but wait a minute. <laughs> 
I am. Turns out I'm really smart. <laughs> more than most of the people in the room. <laughs> like, you know. So brutal. Like all what these realizations kind of emotional abuse can do to someone, right? Especially like for us, we grew up at a time where it was very like self-esteem is so important. And they're trying to drill your self-esteem into kids as we grew up. That's what we grew up on. Is like you can do anything. Uh, like you can be an astronaut or an yeah. engineer or whatever. I don't know. They really focused on the male focused jobs to girls saying like you can do it all. And then realizing that that was just for us, you know, other kids that were getting the opposite message. Yeah. And not even maybe necessarily always actively, right? Like not everyone was bad and telling them you guys all suck. Some people just were internalized the racism around them and just expected less because of who they thought they were. Mm -hmm. That's another example of Unconscious like an bias. Yes. And an invisible barrier. Right. And the people who are of the majority can't see unless they're looking or learning, you know? Yeah. This interruption is brought to you by Unpublished. Do you want to know more about the members and Book Interrupted? Go behind the scenes? Visit our website at www.bookinterrupted.com. Book Interrupted. Hi, it's Leah again. This is my next audio interruption is about how on Sundays, why can I never stop eating? And it sucks when we do these recordings because we can't obviously eat while doing the recordings. And all I want to do is on the whole time, I'm trying to concentrate, have a conversation with my girlfriends about some books. And all I want to do is eat so much food. There's something about a Sunday that I just want to be full all the time. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one that feels that way. Book interrupted. It's book report time. We're going to find out from each member their final thoughts. And do they recommend the book? Let's listen. Okay. This is my take two <laughs> of my book report. I started off very serious and I'm still going to do the serious thing that I want to do for my final book report. But now I'm kind of laughing because I want to read a part of the book. I want to draw attention to the author's voice, but obviously it's going to be read in my own voice. Anyway, I started to, uh, I said this whole blurb about, you know, I don't want to critique the book. I just want to offer my support. And here's, you know, a piece from the book that I think is important for everyone to hear. Obviously, the whole book is important. And then I started reading the wrong piece, the wrong paragraph. So anyway, take two. Here is a clip, a segment, a snippet from They Called Me, number one, by Bev Sellers. Over the years, I had watched my protective big brother, Mike, deteriorate from work in coastal logging camps or planting trees in the interior to drinking too much and working less and less. Eventually, he became a chronic alcoholic on the streets of Williams Lake. One time, Mike was ordered by the courts to attend a treatment center in Prince George. He came back looking healthy and said he was glad to no longer wake up with a hangover. I asked him if he was going to quit drinking for good. He said that although he liked being healthy, being sober also allowed him to start thinking about his life, something he didn't like to do. Whenever his mind ran back to earlier events, he wanted a drink so he wouldn't think. It wasn't too long before Mike was drinking again. Years later, I spotted Mike picking up bottles near a McDonald's restaurant outside Williams Lake. I turned the car around and went to talk to him. We exchanged a few words and I gave him $20. Just as I was about to leave, Mike said to me, don't ever think I don't miss you, Bev. 
I got all choked up and told him that I missed him too. Of course, we didn't hug or even touch. He just walked away, and in my rearview mirror, I watched him head towards town. He had stopped picking up bottles because he had enough money to buy his booze for the day. My heart was broken. I cried off and on all the way through the day. I cried for the young man he once was, the potential he had, the dreams that had been squashed, the dark memories and anger he tried to escape with the use of alcohol and drugs. I cried for the person he had become. My big brother had been reduced to one of society's outcasts, nothing more than a dirty nuisance that needed to be obliterated. Yes, in some ways, Mike had become a threat to society. Over the years, he told me some of the things he had done to other people, and I found it difficult to imagine this protective man harming others. Mike, however, did not get to that place all by himself. Like so many other people, Aboriginal or not, Mike had a lot of help getting where he is today. Mike never told me directly, but based on a few hints he let slip over the years, I suspect that he had been sexually abused at the mission. He suffered from the same low self-esteem that I had, and he quit school in grade 9 or 10. I think Mike's life was predetermined before he ever left the mission. Booze for Mike was an escape that he adopted early in life, and it had him in a full headlock by the time he was in his early 20s. How could he possibly live up to his full potential with all that hurt and pain weighing him down? The streets of William Lake are full of men like Mike. They nicknamed themselves the Troopers. All have relatives in the surrounding communities and families who love them. All are human beings, no matter how bad they may look. They have family and interesting stories, and they are loyal to their friends and relatives. Many times, though, I have watched non-Aboriginal people walk by these street people with a look of disdain, dislike, and even sometimes a look bordering on hatred. They quickly condemn the troopers, but simply have no idea of what Aboriginal people have experienced. What do non-Aboriginal people know of the discrimination we have been put through for their benefit? What do they know of the feelings we have for them but do not show? That's the end of the excerpt. I just want to reread those last two questions because I think that they're really important for all non-Aboriginal people to consider. What do non-Aboriginal people know of the discrimination we have been put through for their benefit? What do they know of the feelings we have for them, but do not show? Those are questions coming from author Bev Sellers, and I think that they're really important for everyone non-Aboriginal to consider, because when you start to answer those questions, you really start to understand the depth of the trauma and... I think, I guess my point is it really then helps to characterize your understanding of today, I guess, and, and relations today and um, where people are at today. I don't really know what else to say. It is ongoing. The discrimination is not over just because, you know, residential schools are not operating anymore. There's so many other examples of how Indigenous people are still not treated the same. In reading books like this and focusing on questions like those, I hope that we can begin to continue, begin to continue. I hope we can continue or begin. I'm not sure, right? Like the whole history is about Indigenous people trying to work with settlers 
and settlers not holding up their end of the deal. And so I'm really skeptical based on what I've learned about where we're at now. What's different? Like hopefully a lot, but I don't know. So anyway, all I can do, because it gets overwhelming, right? Because it's a giant systemic throughout history, major crisis. But when that happens to me, when I kind of fall into the vastness of the issues and feel overwhelmed, I remember that I'm an individual and so I can do what I can do. And what I try to do is find people to hang out with that are different than myself so that I can learn about them rather than rely on stereotypes because I don't have a diversified friend group. I try to pursue knowledge with the tools that I have rather than asking someone who I feel represents the group I'm trying to learn about to fill me in because that's not their job. It's my job and I have the skills and tools to be able to understand and know how to find information. I mean, in this day and age, anyway. So those are two things that I try to do to keep myself informed so that I can be part of a solution and like put action into reconciliation, then be part of a problem and remain kind of stagnant and comfortable in my privilege. This was a fantastic book and I would recommend anybody who is interested in the topic of learning about the residential school problem that has been such a sad highlight of our news this year and last. I really recommend that they read this book. I think it's such an honest account of a young woman's experience being forced from her home to conform in a white Roman Catholic school system that was abusive sexually, mentally, physically, abusive in every possible way. And it has a through line of the women in her family from her mother to her grandmother and her extended family, uh, brothers and uncles and grandfathers, etc. It has a, sorry, I'm struggling to find the words. It's such a tricky topic. It's such a sad state of affairs, really. The situation in this book, this memoir is just heartbreaking and she tells it in such an, a pure, matter-of-fact, almost emotionless way. The, what struck me the most was two things. How emotionless the writing was for such an emotional topic. And it almost was a reflection of what I think might have been what she was taught to do was to separate her needs or her feelings from not even separate, to not have them because they weren't allowed to have anything at these residential schools. And the other thing that really struck me that was really beautiful about this book was the way she spoke about her family life and the food and the culture was so colorful and so detailed and so vibrantly described. It almost felt in polar contrast to when she was speaking about her experience in school. Like two different personalities were reading the same person's story, her own story. So that struck me as really interesting, really hard read. I think a really important read and just really heartbreaking, but also really touching. And I'm sure it's really true to a lot of other people's experience 
this is for the time and how it is, has affected the First Nations culture, the Canadian culture since, and just hundreds of years of trauma for her people. And it, it really is just such an eye-opener. So I do recommend the book. And it's a tearful read, but it's an important read. That's all I have to say. So thanks. Bye. So first off, I want to say I would recommend this book. I would recommend this book for anyone who is interested in educating themselves on residential schools. I think that everyone in Canada needs to educate themselves on residential schools. This is a really great starter book. I was mentioning in some of my other personal journals in our group discussion the tone of the book and how even and neutral the tone is regardless of what she's talking about and how that made it easier to take in the information. However, as I was reading on in the book, it's a little sad that the book is very even because Bev Stellars writes in the book how at residential school she was never allowed to show emotion. And there was one part of the book where she was going to a physiotherapist and he was putting these electrodes on her skin and they were burning her. They burned her so severely and she didn't say anything because she was never allowed to express her own pain. And when the physiotherapist came back, they were like, didn't that hurt? She wrote she felt stupid because she should have known they had to take them off. But because she had been taught at residential schools never to acknowledge her own pain, physical or otherwise, she didn't express her needs. So I... And there's other parts in the book how she mentions later on how she doesn't express her emotions even though she's emotionally in pain. And I think, unfortunately, the residential schools traumatized her that way. She wasn't able in those moments to recognize her pain and express it in a healthy way. However, I really love in the book how she mentions she was in a bookstore and she discovered the book Discovering the Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Pearl and how that 25 cent book really helped her, that self-help book that she used it to help heal some of her trauma. So I love that as well. And she started, you know, working on healing. I like how as you get further in the book and she meets her husband, she is getting more passionate and there is more, I would say, fire in her as the book goes on when she met her second husband. And she goes to university and she starts building confidence in herself, which she does. She challenges herself in ways like becoming chief and having to do public speaking, even though she's extremely shy. And anyway, it's a really great story of a woman who is healing from trauma inflicted on her whole family for three generations. So I also really like her final thoughts. So I wanted to end this on the final thoughts because I think that non-Aboriginal people need to hear this. She put, the churches and governments have reduced one independent Aboriginal nation to beggars in her own lands. While all of the harm and damage cannot be repaired, there is much that can change if non Aboriginals, individuals, and governments abandon the assumption that they know what is best for Aboriginal people. I really like that because I think a lot of times non-Aboriginal people come up with all these solutions for Aboriginal people. History shows that non-Aboriginal people have not helped them. And throughout the book, she doesn't trust non-Aboriginal people at all. And she only starts 
feeling comfortable around non-Aboriginal people once she meets her second husband because he is comfortable around them. But the residential schools really traumatized an entire culture of people. I think that that statement was a very potent statement that we all need to take to heart. It's book report time, everybody. I finished reading They Called Me Number One by Bev Sellers. And I am a better person after having read it because it helped me reflect on hard times and how challenging it is to rise up and stand up again, dust yourself off after experiencing a moment of adversity or many moments of adversity. Bev and her peers certainly were not excluded from many, many, many horrible, traumatic, adverse and challenging moments. Uh, It was wonderful to learn more about the residential school system. And wow, do I wish that this had been included as part of our curriculum growing up. We were not shown this side of Canada. We were not given these stories to remember. And it's about time. So thank you, Bev, for stepping up and being brave enough and courageous enough to tell your side of the story and to help many of us learn where we went horribly wrong. Bev does a very interesting job of telling. So she really does go through factual accounts, doesn't linger very long in any one spot, and shows many, many, many years, as well as the impact on many generations to individuals within the Indigenous and Métis community. Other books sometimes get into a bit more of storytelling. An author will oftentimes choose to show and not tell. However, in this case, it really was as if I was sitting down with Bev and she was just sharing, oh yes, at this point in time or in this year or in this way. So the book was not necessarily rich in symbolism and metaphor, and that's okay. I do tend to gravitate towards book where, you know, understanding and meaning sometimes take place outside of the mind, where it sinks deeper within. Uh, However, this story wasn't like that, and I think that it worked really, really, really well. Her ability to share things that happened to her, different people that crossed her paths in a way that felt light allowed me to take in the very important information. And then afterwards, it would be in moments where I'm like brushing my daughter's hair or washing the dishes or in particular tucking them in at night, that all of a sudden I would reflect back on a chapter that I had just read and they called me number one. And I would remember how Bev's experience was so different from what my daughters are going through. They have a roof over their heads where their bedroom is not, you know, below zero degrees. They've got soft mattresses, warm, comfy, soft blankets, and plenty of hugs and kisses from loved ones who protect them and guard them and nurture them. So it was little things like that 
that although at the time I could read a passage about Bev being in a room or her mother being in a room that was freezing ice cold and sleeping on stacks of hay and not having enough blankets and freezing at night, I could get through those passages, but the deeper meaning would always come after the reading. When I would be doing things in my own life that were similar to a topic that was raised in the book, and then I would have the flood, the wave of realization of how privileged I am. So I thank you, Bev, for making me be that much more grateful and appreciative of the life that I have and for activating a fire within me that has moved me towards action and will not let me deviate from the path of being an ally to the Indigenous and Métis people. I will continue to learn, to hear your stories, and to never forget. As I already said in the group discussion, I do recommend this book. I finished it fairly quickly, again, because of the style of writing. I think it's a good book to start with if you want to learn about residential schools. It's not just about residential schools, though. She starts off talking about her family, so people who came before her and her past, then her life as a child, and as an adult. So her experience at the residential school impacted her adult life as well. And you get an idea of systemic racism that Indigenous people in Canada face that also make it hard for them to do all sorts of things. She overcame a lot of hurdles and obstacles that were thrown in her place just by the system and achieved quite a bit in her adult life. So it's not just a story of surviving, but thriving despite all of the things in the system that were trying to pull her down. So that is great. There's a couple things I did not talk about in the group discussion that I wanted to bring up here. She talks a little bit about forgiveness. She says, a lot of people say that she needs to forgive in order to move on. And she thinks that's bull. And I happen to agree with her. She points out that people who want forgiveness are often the people who inflicted the suffering and this is me speaking, but why should it be on the victim to make the person feel better about themselves? If somebody is truly sorry about a past action, they should also be okay with not being forgiven, knowing that the fallout for their actions is not really about them, it's affected someone else instead. So somebody who's really insistent that they need to be forgiven, still not thinking about the person who has been hurt in a situation. So I agree with you, Bev Sellers. <laughs> in that section, she ends by saying, there can be no forgiveness for evil done in the guise of religion, and there can be no forgiveness for racism. And isn't that just it? This is why we read these books, because rather than continuing on with a racist society and systems, we need to start practicing anti-racism. And informing yourself about the past is one way to start doing that. And she's given this book to us so that we can do that. So the other thing I wanted to say is, well, you know what? It's been kind of hard, just like any book about racism or terrible things that have happened in the past that I didn't know about when I probably should have. This book has been hard to talk about. I can also say it's getting easier. And I'm still a little worried about putting my foot in my mouth and offending somebody. But again, here we are. So I'm going to just keep on stumbling forward here. 
I want to end with a quote of hers that I quite liked. It says, Today, I do not put anyone on a pedestal. I have respect for people and for their achievements, but I also know that if they are down in the dumps or extremely well off, they have had help to get where they are. Doesn't that just sum it up? So I finally finished the book and I'm glad that I read it. Of course, I learned so much more about both the residential schools and also Bev Sellers and her family's experience as Indigenous people living in Canada. But my words aren't as important as Bev Sellers' words, so I want to highlight and finish with those uh, for my final book report. But first, yes, of course, I recommend this book. As Wendy Wickhire said in her afterward, I read this book with tears and laughter, frowns and smiles, anger and joy. I stand in awe and appreciation. I also recommend you read the notes at the end of the book, which have more information. Here we go. So this is towards the end. And Bev Sellers says, I have been told many times that I need to forgive in order to move on with my life. I say bull to that. It is not up to me to forgive. Forgiveness is an easy out for those who have inflicted all the pain and suffering on Aboriginal people. Forgiveness and reconciliation too easily absolve us of our responsibility to find solutions to conflicts. Forgiveness allows the perpetrators to get away with not being accountable for their actions. And then she continues on and then she says, so let's talk about forgiveness only when real dialogue and change take place in Canada. I also want to say the final little bit of the book. So she says, even though I sometimes barely survived, I didn't become one of the terrible statistics of Aboriginal people. In the end, I win. Residential school did not manage to beat the Indian out of me and my Aboriginal pride just keeps getting stronger. I look around and I see many more like me. It makes my heart swell and it makes me hopeful for the future of our Aboriginal nations. I win. And that's her final thoughts. Thank you, Bev Sellers, for writing this book, and thank you for sharing it with the world. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Book Interrupted. If you'd like to see the video highlights from this episode, please go to our YouTube channel. Be sure to subscribe, and you'll be notified when there's new content. Want to be part of the conversation? Have your voice heard on our fan episode next week, or recommend a book and you could be joining us for a six-week book cycle. Find out more by going to www.bookinterrupted.com slash fans. I do a little something with Kim called Silly Saturdays. Just silly stuff that, you know, you want to check out on a Saturday morning. Or any day of the week for that matter. So go check it out. Check out our blog. It is www.bookinterrupted.com forward slash blog. Bye. Book Interrupted. Never forget. Every child matters.